Well, thanks. That never happens at Seabreeze, so that's a, that's a new experience. I appreciate that. Um, Chico is uh, one of the places that's really close to my heart, um, even though I haven't met most of you. The, the reason is because of Gary and Joni Hamilton. Gary and Joni Hamilton um, were my wife and I's best friends uh, when we were in seminary together in Fort Worth, Texas. And uh, in fact, um, right about the time that I was talking to Paul's dad, John, about uh, taking over Seabreeze, um, Gary and Joni were praying about moving to Chico from Southern California to start Chico Community Church. And in fact, um, Gary invited me to pray about joining him um, and teaming together with him to help start Chico Community Church. So we almost moved to Chico. Uh, but God you know, spoke and, and made it clear that uh, Huntington Beach was where uh, he wanted us to be. We thought it was just going to be you know, a shorter assignment. Obviously, 29 years later, it's not a shorter assignment. Uh, and we're grateful uh, for that. And just a little more background kind of on, on me um, before I jump into the topic that I want to share with you in the next couple of days. Um, when I was in college, I would say by the time I ended my sophomore year, I had become um, pretty critical of uh, the church, of you know, organized Christianity. It was kind of popular to be critical at that time, and I was a critical person, so I jumped on that bandwagon and was fairly critical of the churches that I was attending. And um, I was reading in my quiet time, just over the course of a few weeks, and I came across the theme in the New Testament. I'd been aware of it, but hadn't really focused on it, where the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. And I wasn't, um, I wasn't married at the time, wasn't really in a serious dating relationship at all, wasn't engaged or anything. But I knew enough about marriage to know that, okay, if and when I get married, if some guy is critical of my wife, we're going to have some problems. <laughs> you know, it, so what, what God, he didn't audibly say this to me, but it was a pretty strong sense of just knock it off. Stop criticizing my bride. And that, that turned me around. That just, my heart at that point was like, who do I think I am? I'm this 20-year-old, know everything about how church should be after it having happened for 2,000 years. I know what should be, and they're not doing it right. And, and God just said, look, you need to learn. You need to get some training, and I want you to be a part of this. I, at that point, I didn't think I would pastor a church. I thought I'd just be a solid you know, help in, in a church, which is needed in any church. So I began, at that point, I began praying, and I prayed for a couple of years. Just, God, show me a, a place where I can go and I can just help and I can learn a place where people are becoming Christians and they're growing and I can just learn how to do this. And I prayed, not every day, but pretty consistently for two years. And at the end of two years, I heard about this church in Fort Worth, Texas called Hope Church. And so I was living in Michigan at the time and I had one of those Honda Civics. I don't know if you've ever seen those original Honda Civics that were basically go-karts. I don't know why they were legal to drive, but they were. And so I drove down uh, to Michigan and spent a week um, just meeting everyone. The church was about 60 people or so. And about the second day there, it was like, oh, yeah, this is the answer to my prayer. So I packed up everything I owned that could fit in that Honda Civic, and I moved down about a month later. And I uh, didn't have a job. I just knew this is where I needed to be. And uh, so that church was pastored by Harold Bullock, still is pastored by Harold Bullock. And um, that's where we met Gary and Joni. Uh, eventually ended up going to seminary there, met my wife at that church. Um, both our kids were, were born in Fort Worth, Texas. When we moved to Huntington Beach, they were um, two and one. They were little, little, little people, uh, daughter and son. Um, so they have no memory of Texas, in fact. You know, they grew up on the beach, and they don't like to be reminded that they're really Texans. They like to think of themselves as Californians. Um, so we've been there now for uh, 29 years. And uh, as Paul said, you know, there's a lot of challenges with that, a lot of blessings with that. Uh, but we've seen just the faithful hand of God just come through. 
So, that's just a little bit about me. My wife um, was not able to join me um, on this. She was originally planning to do, but some things uh, occurred uh, in our life. Her parents have just, we were taking care of them, and they moved kind of out of state, and so there's been a lot of work that we've had to do to accomplish that, so she wasn't able to join me. So I invited uh, my good friend John Ringer to join us. So John, why don't you wave your hand in the back? So if you see John. John is just not another old guy wandering around camp. He, he's a friend of mine. And uh, John is a member of our advisory team at Seabreeze, which is our uh, lay leadership team, kind of like an elder board or deacon board equivalent. Um, so I'm grateful that John uh, was able to join me for these few days. So what I want to talk uh, to you about in the next five sessions is what is an authentic Christian? Now, there's no such thing as a perfect Christian, so that's not what we're talking about. We're all people in process, but what, what are the indicators of authentic Christianity? And this, I think this is a very, very important question for us to be clear on, uh, especially in this time in history, in this place. Right now in America, depending on the poll that you look at, usually around three quarters of the population will identify themselves as Christian. Um, there's a, depending on how you ask the question, the numbers vary, but about three quarters uh, will say that they're a Christian. But of course, those numbers don't even begin to tell the whole story of what's really true of those, those numbers of people. In a recent poll I read a few years ago of non-Christians, those who do not claim to be Christians, 84% uh, of non-Christians in this poll said that they know a Christian personally. But only 15% of those who say, I know a Christian personally, only 15% said that the lifestyle of the believers they know is any different than the non-believers they know. So that means the vast majority of non-Christians, when they look at a Christian and they look at a non-Christian, they don't see any difference. They don't see any difference in the decisions they make. They don't see any difference in the patterns of their life. They don't see any difference in the way they handle money and the way they treat their wives, the way they handle friendships. Just across the board, they just look about the same. And a lot of other polling data kind of indicates that there's just not that much difference between those who claim to be Christians and those who do not claim to be Christians in our nation. And these non-Christians who were polled, there was one thing that they agreed on, and that is that being a Christian should and is supposed to change the way you live. In other words, they, they, they were saying that there should be a difference. We don't see a difference but there should be a difference. So even those who are not Christians and maybe aren't really clear on what it means to be a Christian, they understand, and I think we all understand, being a Christian isn't just supposed to be a label. It's not just supposed to be something you kind of slap on the front of your forehead or something you say, and now you're a Christian. It's actually supposed to change something fundamental about you that ends up really changing the course of your life and the, the flavor of who you are as a person over time. And so that brings us to the question of, so then what, what, is, what is an authentic Christian? And that's the question that I want to be answering for you in the next couple of days. Now, I, I don't know where all of you are. Um, my guess is, in a group this size, some of you are are pretty new to this maybe, or you're just kind of checking it out, um, trying to figure out if this is something that you want to commit to or maybe something you just newly committed to. And I think this will be really helpful for you as you begin to sort the decisions that you either just made or maybe are thinking about making, because any decision of this magnitude, it's really helpful to know what you're getting ready to decide. Now, in some ways, it's kind of like marriage. You can't know everything that's going to happen after you make a marriage commitment, but you really want to know as much as you can before you make that commitment. And so I think if, if you're kind of new to this or just investigating this, this is going to be really helpful, I hope, for you to get a sense of, okay, so if I decide to do this, these are the implications. This is what I'm deciding to do. And then for those of you who have already made that decision, uh, maybe you made the decision pretty young in life. You've kind of grown up in this, and, and you're, you're pretty familiar with this, or, or you've, you've kind of really nailed this down. Again, this will be really helpful for you because these are the, the key 
indicators in the decisions that a follower of Christ makes. And therefore, whether you've decided to follow Christ decades ago, like me, or days ago, you just keep coming back to these. You just never, it's like a basketball player. You never get past the fundamentals of dribbling the ball, passing the ball, jump shots, you know. If you're Michael Jordan, you got to keep dribbling the ball, you know. And it, no matter how great you are, no matter how long, it's the same thing with Christian faith. You just keep coming back to these things. So kind of no matter where you're at on the spectrum of your experience, your exposure to uh, what it means to be a Christian, I think this will be helpful for you. Um, on uh, July 5th, 1865, so this is Civil War time, the Secret Service was formed on that date in response to a national threat. Now, we think of the Secret Service right now as primarily as the protectors of the president, but that was not the threat that caused the formation of the Secret Service. I mean, there were assassination attempts, and in fact, President Lincoln was assassinated shortly after the formation of the Secret Service, but that wasn't the reason for their formation. Uh, it wasn't uh, the threat of any military conflict, even though this was the Civil War. Uh, Abraham Lincoln is the one who formed the Secret Service, and the reason he formed the Secret Service was to address the problem of counterfeiting. That's the fundamental reason for the formation of the Secret Service. And the reason it were, they were formed is because at this time, in 1865, it was estimated that one-third of all the U.S. currency in circulation was fake. So just imagine all the cash out there, a third of it is counterfeit. So what was happening, the reason this was happening is the Confederacy, this was one of their war strategies, the Confederacy was trying to weaken the Union by undermining its currency. And it was really working. I mean, they had printing presses in the South that were just cranking out fake, counterfeit currency. And what was occurring is people were losing confidence in the U.S. dollar because they couldn't tell the real ones from the fake. And the same kind of thing, I say this because I think the same kind of thing is happening in the Christian faith right now. The number of people claiming to be Christians is in decline. I mentioned that three-quarter, but every time there's a poll, it's lower. It's lower. And there, of course, there are many reasons. There's a lot of things going on in the culture right now um, that's, I think, driving this. But as I talk with my friends who are not Christians, um, the top reason that almost always comes up, not in every case, but almost always comes up, is that they have had some experience in their past with someone claiming to be a Christian that, that caused them a tremendous amount of hurt. My assessment is they've got burned by a counterfeit Christian. And now they don't want to have anything to do with it. It's kind of like they, you know, they tried to spend a fake 20, and it was rejected, and now they're swearing off currency, just using credit cards. I don't trust bills anymore. And that's, that's what's happening uh, in, in, in pretty large numbers. So, again, the question is, how do you tell fake from real? So, uh, I think on the front row, you guys were all given $1 bills. Now, mixed in with those uh, front few rows or so. So go ahead and take those bills out. Um, 20 of them should be real dollar bills. And those are yours to spend as you see fit. Okay? 20 of them are fake. And I'm so sorry if you got a fake one. Now, let me just, I want, I want everyone to hear this really carefully. Do not try to spend the fake ones. It is a federal crime. This is a risk that I'm taking. I don't want to be an accessory to a federal crime. I can just see it in the paper. Pastor involved in counterfeit scheme based in Hume Lake, you know, or something. So, so I don't want to do that. So let me just, out of curiosity, how many of you got the real ones? Just raise them up. Okay. Now, those who got the fake ones... How did you, how could you, you're not Secret Service agents, you haven't been trained in counterfeiting uh, identification techniques. How, just, just kind of tell me, shout out, how did you know they were fake? What were some of the indicators? Too crispy, okay. The paper was, didn't feel right. What else? It says on the top, motion picture prop use only. Very important. 
Okay, Washington, now you, you might want to have someone show you these. Washington looks really weird. I mean, it looks like he's had some kind of plastic surgery or something, but his, his face is way too smooth for, for an old guy. Anything else? Okay, it doesn't say in God we trust. Now, you, you can spend your free time any way you want, but you might want to take five or ten minutes. And there, you, you'll, the more you look at those fake ones, you find little kind of things embedded in there uh, that are not the way the real ones are. Some of them are kind of funny, but it's fun to, to look back. One of the big things is they just feel different. And as you look at the design of bills, uh, the paper that's used to print the bills is really unique paper. It's very hard to manufacture, and it just feels really different. So most um, bank tellers, they learn to identify fake currency primarily by the feel. Um, as sophistication has increased in this, they, they've had to develop more methods, but oftentimes uh, it's the feel. So, so if you got a fake $1 bill again, I'm sorry. The next session, we'll be doing the same exercise with $100 bills. So we will see people flood to the front. I mean, these first you know, three hours before, no, I'm not going to. I cannot afford uh, to do the same thing with $100 bills. So $1 bills was as much as I could afford uh, to do that. So um, the question then again we're addressing is how would you identify a Christian? What would be the differences? Now, just to be clear, the purpose of this is not so you can become a Christian Secret Service agent and go out and point the finger and say, uh, fake. Now, th this is for your use, okay? This is so that you are clear on what this means. You are not being deputized as an agent of God to clear out all the fake Christians. That, that is not a mission that, um, that I want you to take on, nor should you take on. But what is it, what, in what way should a Christian be noticeably different? I mean, should a Christian be nicer than the average person? I would, I would hope so. The problem is, in my experience, that's not always the case. I know some really, really nice pagans. And by pagan, I mean without God. That's what that word means. They're not Christians. Just the sweetest, kindest, nicest people. To the point where I think, I don't even know if you need Jesus. And that's a problem because we don't need Jesus to become nicer. We need Jesus to forgive us. And no matter how nice you are, there's, there's ugliness on the inside that needs to be forgiven. So that's one of the mistakes people make. They think, oh, niceness is it. Let's get all the nicest people over here. They must be the Christians. The surly people over here, they must be all the non-Christians. Well... Not necessarily. I would hope over time you would become a nicer person. But again, that's not the key identifier. Um, do Christians sin less than non-Christians? Well, again, yeah, I would hope so over time, yes. That's the real intent. We take sin seriously. But again, depending on the season of life and the person, I know some Christians that are cranking out more sin than I think some non-Christians are at certain points. So it, it's something more than just I sin 20 times a day and I miss the cut, so I'm not a Christian anymore. There's something deeper going on than just that. And I'm mentioning these because this is what people think. Well, this is what authentic Christian is. You're nicer, you sin less. Well, yeah, but it, there's more than that. Um, do they get better grades in school? Do Christians get better grades in school? Wouldn't that be great? You make a commitment to Christ and your GPA just starts rising because now you're brilliant. No, no, that's, that's not true. Do they drive less aggressively? Mm, I don't know. I've been around some pretty aggressive Christian drivers. <laughs> I know, I know one friend of mine that won't put a fish on his car for that very reason. He, he doesn't want to 
You know, think, well, that's not, maybe not good. But again, it goes deeper than that. Here's one that people think a lot. Do Christians have less fun than non-Christians? Well, what I've heard about you guys is you, you make it really clear that that's not the case. Christians are able to have fun. And that's great. Because I remember that, that for a while that was my thought is, okay, if I get serious about Jesus, that means the fun meter just is going to go down. Well, I mean, your life is about more than fun, for sure. But there's a tremendous amount of joy and gladness and laughter that comes with following Jesus Christ. But a lot of people think that, okay, to be a Christian means I just I got to be sour now. Um, here's another one. Do Christians think less analytically about life than non-Christians? No. A lot of people think so. They think that in order to be a Christian, you have to have some kind of logical compromise in your brain that occurs that causes you to think less analytically. And that's just not true. In fact, if you look throughout history, some of the most brilliant people have been serious followers of Jesus Christ. So again, that's, that's not the marker either. Now, when it comes to American currency, it has been redesigned many times. Here's a few pictures of some of the $100 bills, of which I have none to show you, but these are pictures of them. <laughs> these are just different versions of the $100 bill. And the reason the $100 bill in particular keeps getting redesigned is because it is the favorite one with counterfeiters. I mean, why go to all the trouble of printing a $1 bill? Same amount of ink, same kind of paper, just put 100 on it and that passes easier. You know, a $1,000 bill, people really look those over, but 100, so that's the favorite with counterfeiters. So that's been the one that's been redesigned the most. And the reason it's redesigned is as soon as a new bill is designed with new anti-counterfeit features in it, then of course the criminal element figures out how to do that, and then you gotta redesign it to make it even tougher. So that's why it keeps being redesigned. But the Christian faith, has never been redesigned. There are not five or six or eight versions. There's maybe some different kinds of churches and some different preferences. But what it means to be a Christian is based on what Jesus taught. And that doesn't change over time. So to find out what an authentic Christian is, we have to go back to the original documents and examine what the New Testament says a Christian is. So. A great summary, I think, of what an authentic Christian is, is found in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. So that's where we are going to spend the next five sessions camping out, Colossians 3, 1 through 7. Now, the passage begins with two words, and I'm going to be using the ESV translation, but feel free to use whatever translation you like. But the two words that begin in the ESV translation is if, then. And those two words kick off the next 17 verses, and they basically answer this question. If you're a Christian, then this is what's true of you. If, then. Now, the 17 verses that follow list the identifying features that are present in the life of someone who truly follows Jesus. Now, these 75, or these, not 75, 17 verses are divided into three sections. Now, we're going to keep coming back to this. So if you, if you can't capture all this in your notes, that's okay. The beginning of every session, I'm going to remind you of just kind of the structure of this so you can really get this down. The 17 verses are divided into three um, sets. And within these sets, there are three identifiers for a total of nine identifiers. So we're going we're to look at nine identifiers. So let me just give you the outline of the 17 verses. First, verses 1 through 4 contain the three decisions that Christians make. We're going to look at that in this session. The three decisions that Christians make. Verses 5 through 14 contain the three practices that Christians do. This gets into how being a Christian shows up in daily life. That's what a practice is. You, you do it on a regular basis. These are the three practices that help you grow as a Christian. 
And then lastly, verses 15 through 17 are the three perspectives that Christians have. This is the angle from which Christians see the challenges of life very differently. Okay, so there's the three decisions, the three practices, and the three perspectives. So we're going to begin with the three decisions, and so let me read to you Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. I think we'll project it up on the, yeah, the screen behind you. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So the three decisions that Christians make are seen in three words that precede the name of Christ in these first four verses. And they all begin with the letter W. These are the three W words, I call them. With Christ, that's the first decision we'll look at. Where Christ, decision number two. And when Christ, decision number three. So the W words are the key that unlock the three decisions in these first four verses. So let's begin with the first decision. It's number one, with. With Christ. So... I decide to attach my life to Christ, to be with him. Now, with is a small little word that carries life-altering implications. Let me give you an example of that. A few years ago, my wife and I were going through security at Orange County Airport, and um, we were getting close to, you know, putting the bags to the x-ray machine and all of a sudden, my wife turned to me and said, I, I think I left my water bottle in my carry-on luggage. And it's like, oh, no, we don't want to, you know, TSA, pull us out of the line. We're, we're late already. So I just, I went ahead and I grabbed her carry-on luggage um, from her, and I threw it back on the table, and I opened it up, and I started rifling through her bag. Well, the TSA agent watching this, he didn't know who we were. He just saw some guy get out of line and grab some woman's bag take it from her, put it on the table, and start rifling through this bag. So he stepped up to my wife and said, Ma'am, are you with him? And she said, yes. Now, that's a small little phrase, simple phrase, are you with him? And a one-word answer, yes, that described something really deep and profound. It was 34 years ago that my wife said yes to my marriage proposal. And then I do when we got married. And that decision meant that she decided to attach her life to mine, and I decided to attach my life to her. She decided to be with me, and I decided to be with her. Not just going to the line at the airport, but in every area of life. So what that with word means is that our two lives are forever linked together now. We have two children together. And now we have five grandchildren that we share together. Our financial future is tied up with each other. If she decides to make a financial mess of things, then that affects my life because I'm with her. If I decide to be financially stupid, that affects her because we are with each other. Our finances will rise and fall together, not separately. She has thrown her lot in with me, and I've thrown my lot in with her. Now, when we say I'm with my wife, that doesn't mean that I've spent every moment of every single day of the last 34 years in the same room with her. I mean, right now she is in Huntington Beach and I'm here. So I'm not physically with her, but I'm still with her. Now, I didn't feel the need to explain all of this to the TSA agent about what it meant 
how we got married and our history together. And what do you mean, is she with me? She's with, with, with me. So, you know, but that one little question pointed to a big deal decision in our life that has had life-altering implications. And I point that out because it's a similar thing that happens whenever a person decides to be with Christ. The decision to attach your life to Christ has all kinds of life-altering implications. And it's, I think it's best summarized by the word that's mentioned here, the word raised. If you have been raised with Christ, what that means is you decide to be with Christ. At that moment, your life and your future has a very different trajectory. It's, it's a raising trajectory. That doesn't mean life is suddenly going to be great, but there's a very different angle now to your future and to your eternity. I mean, in a sense, it's on a much smaller scale, but it's similar to what happened to me when I got married. Now, you've heard the phrase, I married up. That's what this is talking about. You know, the, the, the woman that I married has elevated me, has raised my life in all kinds of ways. I mean, I, I attached my life to someone who has elevated me. You know, her mind and her perspective on life has been a blessing to me in ways that I, I really find hard to describe. And I'm not, I'm not the only one that's experienced this raising effect that can come from this kind of attachment. You know, I know some, some guys that married into money. The moment they said I do and she said I do, their net worth was raised. Uh, that wasn't the reason they got married, but that wasn't the case with my wife. We were both pretty poor, so our net worth <laughs> stayed about the same. <laughs> but, you know, if you marry into money, your net worth is raised. Um, if you marry someone smarter than you, you're going to make better decisions. If you listen, <laughs> you'll make better decisions. So the elevating effect that can occur in a marriage is just a small picture of the life-raising impact that attaching your life to Jesus has. Now, my wife is great, but she's never risen from the grave great. Jesus did that. So you attach your life to Jesus. That's some serious elevation. Now, one of the biggest ways that that attachment raises you and me is that Jesus has the power to forgive sin. I mean, sin is not just a moral oops. Most people in our culture think of it as a moral oops that all you need to do is turn around and say, sorry, and then move on. Years ago, I had someone back into me in a parking lot. They got out of the car. They looked at my mashed bumper said, sorry, and then got back in the car and started to drive away. So I ran after him and said, stop, wait, 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 wait. You, you, you can't just say sorry. We got exchange insurance. We, we got, but that's the way people tend to do with, with moral collisions. Sorry. And then they drive off. But that's not... That's not the nature of sin. It's not just a moral oops through which we can go, yeah, sorry about that. It is a life-destroying, separating from God decision. It is the primary cause of our death because it separates us from God, and God's the sustainer of life. So we decide to separate ourselves from the sustainer of life. That's a big problem. And the resurrection that Jesus had indicated that he had the power to be victorious over sin and the death that is a result of that sin. So if we decide to attach our life to him, our sin is forgiven. The debt is canceled. And that changes, fundamentally changes, both this life and the life to come. Now, this life that we have in Christ it says it is hidden with Christ. 
you know, just like the TSA agent, he couldn't look at me and say, yeah, I think those two are married. I mean, I might be able to guess, but you just can't tell. We don't, you know, when you're married, you drive in a car that says just married, but after about a week, it's kind of lame to keep driving around a car that says just married. So eventually, you have to ask, you guys married? If you don't know. Because just because you get married, there's no visible indication that you're married. The same thing happens when you make a commitment to Christ. You, you decide to follow Jesus Christ. You don't start glowing in the dark or something. You, 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 don't, you can't levitate. I mean, you're, you're, the, you're you. You look the same the day after as you did the same the day before. You, because the life that you have now is hidden. It's hidden with Christ and God. You, you, you can't see it. So that's the with decision. That's where it all begins. You decide, you know what? I'm with him. I'm going to link my entire future and eternity to him, to Jesus Christ, because of who he is. That's the first decision. And then the, the decisions cascade after that. They're linked to this decision, but it begins with this one. Yeah, I'm with him. He's with me. The second W word is where. Where is Christ? Is the question. What this decision means is I decide to shift what I value. Let me just summarize what this means and then we'll get into the more details. Over time, not immediately, but over time, I decide to view the things in this world as less important and the things that last for eternity as more important. So this earth is still great and we'll have fun, but we realize that the real value isn't in anything that will perish with this world. The real value is the stuff that's going to endure into heaven. So Christians are with Christ, but where is Christ? Well, he's in heaven, it says. He's seated at the right hand of God. Now, we aren't there. So how does Jesus being there impact where we are now and what we do now? My grandkids now live in town, but for quite a while, they lived out of state. But just because they were three states away from me didn't mean that they didn't have any impact on my life. Three states away, my thoughts would often turn to my grandkids, even though I wasn't there. It's the same kind of thing that happens when someone decides to be with Christ. Our thoughts often turn to where he is. Well, how does that affect us? We begin to seek the things that are above. Why? That's where he is. So, with my grandkids, for example, I never got children's books. I mean, children's books to me are, I was in publishing for a while, and it's like, man, that's not a lot of words and not much ink for a whole lot of money. I'm sure they're useful, but I have no interest in them. But, of course, now, I, I'm really interested in children's books. Why? Because my granddaughters love them. Same kind of thing happens with Jesus. Personally, I am not a big fan of forgiving people. I'm a big fan of punishing people who have wronged me. I'm a big fan of telling other people of the wrong that other people have done to me. That just feels good. So I'm not a fan of forgiving. But it turns out forgiveness is a really, really big deal with Jesus. So, since I'm seeking the things that are important where he is, I'm working on learning how to forgive. On my own, I, forgiveness wouldn't make sense. But because I'm seeking the things that are above, I'm, I'm, I'm working over time on forgiveness. Now, seeking the things that are above doesn't mean that we have 
we, we work up emotional feelings towards these things. No, the phrase that's said here is we have to set our minds on things that are above. We have to learn, what this is saying, we have to learn how to think differently. And this takes time. Good news for you, God willing, you got some years in front of you. Now you know what to work on. <laughs> See, before Jesus, we make our major decisions based on whatever we thought was best. And we make our smaller decisions same way. We wake up, what do I want to do? But now we set our minds to make decisions that fit in with what he thinks is best. Now, seeking, the word seeking implies an activity of priority. If you lose your keys, you seek after your keys. What does that mean? You don't do anything else. That's a focus. Now, in life, there's all kinds of things you have to do, but there needs to be time to really focus on seeking the things of God. You only put in seeking level effort for something that's important. Now, the treasure that's at the top of everyone's seeking list is happiness. That's pretty much what everyone, I mean, you, you boil it all down, I just want to be happy. You ask most parents, what do you want for your kid? I just want to be happy. I said, everybody, we want to be happy. But it turns out that pro proves to be a very elusive search. Now, there are many treasure maps promising to guide us to what will make us happy. The X that marks the spot on all of these happiness maps point to something here on earth. If you can accomplish this here, that'll make you happy. If you can possess that, that'll make you happy. If you can have this kind of person in your life, if you can marry that kind of person, then you'll be happy. But once we arrive at the spot, we find that it's not as happy. I mean, there's a little happiness, but it's not as happy as I thought it would make me. And then the happiness seems to fade. And then I've got to find another treasure map. The reason is that the treasure of happiness is not here. Where is it? Well, it says here, the key to your life is hidden with Christ in God. Where is he? He's not here. So this is what it means to be a Christian. You agree with the other Christians that the treasure of life is not here. We agree with everyone that it seems to be elusive. It's hidden. But we know that it's not here. Why do we know that? Well, because we have died. What does that mean? I mean... We look pretty alive. We're all walking around. We're going to eat some food. That's what living beings do. Well, when it says we have died, it means we've died with Christ. And what that means is that when we decide to attach our life to Jesus, his death becomes a kind of death for us too. And the death is, it's a death to hear. Now, we're still living here. We're still going to earn money here. We're still going to make jobs and buy cars and drive here. But we've died to the idea that almost everybody else has, and that is the secret to happiness is buried somewhere here in this life. We've died to that idea. And you know what that means? That saves us so much time and so much money and so much grief looking for happiness here. I mean, if you do that, I've just saved you a million dollars or more. Well, God has, but I've told you about it. I mean, at this point, I mean, I, I know guys my age that have wasted their lives opening treasure map after treasure map. But if you decide to be with Christ and then you just realize where Christ is, the secret to life is hidden with him. So it's not here. I want to live my life here for there. I don't want to live my life here just for here. That is a fundamentally life-altering, multiple-decade kind of decision. But that's what it means to be an authentic Christian. So Christians go through life with the clarity 
that sometimes only occurs to people on their deathbed. On the deathbed, the few times I've seen that, nobody thinks that the next new car is worth anything or owning a house is worth anything. All that matters on the deathbed are the people that they love and the future that they think is going to be theirs. That's all that matters. So we have the opportunity to get that kind of clarity now. Wouldn't it be great to have that clarity now in your 20s rather than two hours before you die? <gasps> Too late to do anything about it. So we get to die with Christ now and then make this life here really count for what lasts forever. Because of where Christ is, we can make that decision. Then the third decision, when. When means I decide to live for God's larger purposes. The phrase is when Christ, who is your life, appears. Christ said that one day he's going to appear on, again on earth to wrap up history. Well, when's that going to be? Oh, there's lots of debate. Nobody knows. There's one thing everybody agrees on pretty much. It hadn't happened yet. He hasn't shown up yet. But when he does, those who are with him will appear with him in glory. Now, the definition of glory, simple definition is, is a beautiful and bright light. That's why we refer to sunsets as glorious. You know, we, we glorify a person by turning the spotlight on them and applauding them, getting heads to turn to them. Now, all of these lesser moments of glory point to this final moment of glory, the capital G glory. When the lights on God are going to go up and every head will turn and go, oh, man. Now, we may give God glory for the beauty of a sunset, but what happens in this life is whenever our life takes a tragic turn or a hard turn, we wonder about God. We struggle. And that's because we tend to think of God as some kind of cosmic butler waiting to be summoned by us and the people of this world to make the circumstances of life better. You hear people say this all the time in a moment of tragedy. Where was God? That's a butler question. I rang the bell. I am not pleased with the level of service that we're getting here on this planet. That's what people think. But it turns out that in the pages of Scripture, God presents himself as the author of a very great and very long story. And like any real story that anybody wants to read, there are lots of ups and lots of downs. You know, this, this is why when you're reading a book or you're watching a movie and things get bad, you don't just slam the book shut and storm out of the movie. No, you know that's just part of the larger story. And if it's a good story, not an artsy story, if it's a good story, you know that before the two hours are up in the movie or the book comes to an end, the hero is going to make all the wrongs right and the audience will applaud. That is the moment of glory when the story finishes and everybody goes, wow, I didn't know how that was all going to work out. But before the moment of glory, it can look pretty bad. Like it did three days before the resurrection. It looked so bad that all of Jesus' disciples said, I'm out of this story. And they fled for their lives. But then just three days later, he rose from the dead. That Sunday morning was all light and all glory, but it was preceded just three days earlier by death and darkness, the lowest of all loves. So now we await the final display of God's glory when Jesus returns visibly to wrap up history and right every wrong. We wait for him to finish the story. So what authentic Christians do is they, they, they live for that moment. Not by spending their days longing and looking up into the sky, is Jesus coming today or not? 
No, they, they do this by living their personal stories for the larger story. And that's very important to do. Without Christ, before Christ, we are all writing and starring in our own personal and much smaller self-published stories. More like booklets. The problem is, we don't have the power to bend reality to our will like God does. So our stories just, some are better, some are worse, but they're, they're just, they're not that great. And when a person decides to be with Christ, they decide to live for a larger purpose than themselves. They are grateful to have their names and their lives included in the larger story of God. One of the phrases that's mentioned in the book of Revelation a couple times is that the, the privilege of having your name written in the book of life. Now, I used to think the book of life was kind of like a phone book. Now, you may not have ever heard of a phone book, but just imagine all of your contacts on paper in a book listed in alphabetical order. That's what the old phone books were. And so I just thought, well, you know, in heaven, there's going to be this big phone book, you know, and, and we'll flip to the U's for me. My last name is Unruh, and I just, oh, is my name listed? Oh, Made it in the book of life. But as you read through the New Testament on this idea of the book of life, it's not a phone book. It's a storybook. What this means is the great privilege is, oh, on page 3,845, I'm in that paragraph. My name got in the big book, the book of life, not the book of dead stories, the book of forever stories. That's what we get to live for. We get to, we get to have just a, a mention along with all the other people. Oh, it doesn't get any better than that. What this means is that we're willing to wait for everything to work out because we know we're living in the middle of the great story and not at the end of it. It's really hard to live in the middle because in the middle, we don't know how life's going to work out for us. I mean, right now, you're wondering, who am I going to marry? I don't know. Those of you that aren't married, those of you that are married, that's answered. <laughs> you may wonder, am I going to get married? And then, you're going to wonder, how will that marriage go? Will we have kids? What will they be like? Am I going to be able to find a job after I've spent all this money in college? <laughs> Don't know. You're in the middle of the story. That's next chapter. And then after you get your job, will I get a better job? I don't know. And then when you get to my age, all my friends are saying, how much money do we need to save for retirement? The running answer is more, I guess. <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. And then will I recover from this illness? I've got some friends that are asking, is my marriage ever going to get any better? Or will I get better? Everyone on this planet is living with questions like these because we're all living in the middle of the story. Now, Christians are those who do not get a higher level of service from God in answering these questions. What they get from God is a bigger story in which to fit these questions into. That is huge. Because if at the end of every day, it's just your personal story, then you draw the finish line on this day and it's a tragedy or a comedy or a mystery, but if it's just one more day in the great story, you're willing to wait. So this means that Christians don't demand favorable answers to the questions of this life in order to be okay. I mean, like anyone, they would prefer positive answers, but they've decided that the hidden treasure to life isn't buried anywhere on this planet. It's not ultimately experienced in anything that occurs here. The hidden treasure is Christ. And he hasn't come back yet to wrap up history and put everything right. So, of course, 
Life is a mixture of good things and bad things. And of course, justice is a hit and miss proposition. We're in the middle of the story. So Christians work hard at not looking at the scoreboard of life and considering that to be the final score. They know it's second quarter, third quarter, who knows? Somewhere in the middle. They're willing to wait for the time when Christ, who is their life, appears. So while the heads of most people in this world are turning to ooh and to ah and to boo and to hiss, what we can see, Christians are those who patiently, behind the scenes, build a life that will be head-turning when Jesus shows up. It will not trend now. But it will be head-turning then. And these three decisions are the foundation of the Christian life. Everything we're going to talk to from this point is not going to happen if these three are not anchored. With, you decide to attach your life to Christ. Where you change over time what you value, what's important to you. You begin to value what's valuable in heaven more than what's valuable here on earth. When you decide to live for God's purposes, you're willing to wait for everything to work out. So as I wrap up, I want us to read these four verses together. I want you to read them out loud. And this will be fun because you're a college group, so I can't get people at church to be this energetic. So hopefully you'll, you'll help me pump these words. Whenever we get to one of these W words, I want you to emphasize it. So let me give you an example. We're going to start, you know, if then you've been raised with Christ, say, and then we'll go on, no, 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 no. where Christ, okay? So we just, just to emphasize the W word. So let's see how we do with that. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, is it on here? All right, we've got the, the words labeled, so we're in good shape. Let's go. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. All right. Well done. So let me uh, close in prayer. And I'm going to make this prayer um, a prayer of commitment to these three decisions. So if um, you've already made these decisions, if you've already made you know, commitment to Christ, then just, this is just a clarification or reaffirmation of what you've already done. Um, if you're considering and you're ready to make this decision, then allow this prayer to be your prayer of decision, of commitment. Um, so you know where your heart is. Um, feel free, if this is a new decision, to tell some of the leaders about that so they can help clarify things with you. But we're just going to, um, I'm going to pray and uh, just ask you that as I pray along, just allow your heart to follow me with these words. Um, where you're at. So let's pray. Well, Jesus, the evidence about who we are is pretty clear. We are a mixed bag of good and bad, but far too often the bad just takes over, and we end up doing damage to ourselves and to the people around us. And the evidence of who you are is also very, very clear. There's no way to explain the miracles you did in the resurrection other than to recognize that you really are God in flesh. And so today, we declare that we are with you. We're so grateful that you're willing to be with us. We attach our life to you, and we accept the forgiveness that only you can give. And because of that, we now seek the things that are above. That's where you are. Now, the pull of the things of this earth are still strong. But over and over again, we seek the things that are above where you are, and we make it our goal to do your will on earth 
as it's done in heaven. And Jesus, we also recognize this means that we're willing to wait. We would like everything to work out, but we know it's not going to work out now. Some things will, but a lot of things won't. So help us face the challenges of today while we await your return. We thank you for your mercy and your forgiveness and the privilege of leveraging our years to be a part of the great story. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.